1: Good day and welcome to the New Books and Music podcast. I'm your host today, Steve Lee Nash. Today I'm joined by James Cook. James is the author of the book Memory Songs, a personal journey into the music that shaped the 90s, which is out now and published by Unbound. The book details the author's own adolescent musical obsessions, from the Beatles to John Barry, from Led Zeppelin to the Waterboys, that led him to form his own band, Flamingos, move to London and begin the long and often perilous road to becoming a full-time working musician. The book is part memoir, part music criticism, part social history. It's my pleasure to welcome James to the podcast. Hi James. Hi Steve. Good to hear from you man. Yeah no good to be on the show. show. Thank you for inviting me. So I, uh, I feel there that my introduction probably didn't even scratch the surface of who you are and what you've done, what you've achieved. So please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it was all there. Um, the book is kind of quite a hard sell
0: because it's a number of different things. It, it's a sort of hybrid of a memoir. And um, I hesitate to say music criticism or music analysis, but you've got that sort of strand going through so what it basically is it's a a memoir of the 80s and 90s told through favorite or significant songs so you've got the first part which is set in the 80s and you've got chapters on say bowie the beatles roxy music uh and then you go to part two which is in the 90s um and you've got chapters on the manic street preachers sway pulp so you've got all the music that's fed into this Era, um, which, you know, for want of a better umbrella term, let's call Britpop, early to mid 90s, all this music was sort of feeding in, and there was a sort of um, kind of uh, culmination or apotheosis at that point where sort of everything was focused on London. And that's where the band that I formed with my brother, Flamingos, um, my twin brother, I should say, Jude, uh, we were around at that time making records so we didn't I mean we took part but we were peripheral um I always say we were a a footnote on a footnote um which is not to sort of denude how serious we were but we were sort of we were sort of it's a kind of first-hand account of being there at the time that's that's kind of what what the the book evolves into
1: well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's good as well. And, you know, it's interesting because there's a line that I, um, I pulled out of the, uh, of the book, um, which talks about the peripheral, uh, being on the peripheral of your evolving lives, but yeah. sometimes being on that periphery is where the most interesting stories are found, um, which I've kind of like a, a line that I pulled out of the book kind of as a summary of the entire book itself, really. Yeah, I think
0: so. I think with, um, it's very different to to sort of you know the memoir strand of the book is very different to to your usual rock memoir because you've got a you you know that you know the narrative arc you know what happens they, they they're in obscurity they make it big they do loads of drugs they, they implode and uh, and then and then there's redemption with 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 this because we weren't a big band by any means you have a sort of a slightly different arc you know there's a is a sort of um, we make an album, which is our own kind of, you know, sort of, um, our, our ambitions have been sort of satisfied by that. It's a, different, it's a different thing. It's not, you know, you're not reading the book. Um, it's not, the point of the book isn't that it's, it's by a famous person. And that's why you read the book. I think when, when I started writing it, I was more interested in, in ideas around music. Um, and then I realized that there was a, a pretty good story
1: um, so um, I do have a bunch of questions about your time uh, in flamingos, which are, are coming up later. But let's uh, let's just um, pull focus on the title for a second, because there's obviously it's called memory songs. So what is actually a memory song? How would you describe that?
0: Yeah, I was asked this once before, um, very early on, and it's it's difficult to describe it because. It's not just, I mean, any a song, a song that you uh, have known in the past will bring back memories. Any old song will do that. What, what a memory song is really is a song you've had in your life as sort of part of the mental furniture for a long time. Um, so ideally you hear it first in your, in your teens or early 20s. And as you go through different phases of your life, it's sort of with you. Um, so it kind of helps to be old. Uh, <laughs> The older you get, the better it is because you get this this sort of um I think I describe it as a sort of hierarchy of um meanings that the song has to you. So for instance, you might like a band or a record song in your teens and then you sort of move away from it, you forget about it, and then suddenly in your twenties you have this really intense phase where you play it again and then maybe in your thirties there's another phase. So you're sort of building over in layers like a like an old master canvas you know but the the initial connection you have with that song it might be hard to get to is, is always there um if you kind of listen to it it can be hard it can be hard to locate but if you listen to it with one ear as it were if you know what i mean mm-hmm. um there at, at, at the core of the song and this i found this idea fascinating because these songs if they're any good they, they endure and they become part of Part of your life, and, and I wanted to, to sort of investigate that, and, and how and how songs like that affect people.
1: Well, it's a really interesting, uh, interesting take, and I, I found this book to be particularly interesting because I have a similar sort of um, sort of take as you, but my sort of side of things is film, and I think there's a case to be made for a memory films you know when Absolutely. i was a kid there's you know there's so many movies that i watched as a kid that i still resonate with me now no, even though some some of them are pretty problematic films you know <laughs> so uh they haven't aged well in this day and age but for some reason they still stick with you and that's definitely the case with music too but yeah one of the reasons i was so interested in this book was because you know music has played a big part in my life but so has film as well in that kind of memory sense so yeah i mean i would, I would
0: Encounters of the Third Kind the other day, which I'd first seen in sort of 1978. Yeah, and, and you know, over the years, it's, and, and if, especially if you become a parent, you know, a film, a film like that has these different layers of, of, of resonance. You know, and um, yeah, no, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, it, but but yeah, with, with songs, it's a it's slightly more obvious because music and 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 the sense of smell are the two things I think that really connect us with the past. You know.
1: Absolutely. So, um, in the first part of the book, uh, which details your kind of uh, your adolescence to teenage years, your really your first kind of uh, music that you were. Uh that really took you was The Beatles Um, so tell us about this moment when you first heard uh, The Beatles I believe it was The White Album is that correct? It
0: wasn't it was Revolver it
1: was Revolver sorry about that yeah and uh, so just tell us the importance of hearing Revolver for the first time it it was an odd one because because um, my parents my dad
0: was um, he just listened to classical music that was you know fair play to him pop was the enemy he just didn't get it he just in my dad's record collection, there was one pop album, and that was Revolver, which was in there by accident. It was actually it had it, been at their, their wedding reception, um, and someone had been sent out to, um, I think, you know, there was, there was Brahms or something on the dance set. Someone had been sent out to buy a pop album, any, any pop, album. and they came back with Revolver, which is you know, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good uh, sort of random choice um, to come back with. So this this was the one record, and 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 I got. Into the record by looking at the sleeve, I thought this is a really interesting sleeve. It's very different to all the other, the, the Rhine scenes, you know, and all the kind of the, the other classical records. So, not knowing anything about the Beatles, and I must have been about twelve, I started playing this record with, with my brother because it was it's a sort of joint experience. Being twins, you know, we kind of discovered things jointly. So we played this record, and it was a very strange record. It was extremely bizarre, different styles um although you know accessible um and this was a couple of months or a couple of months after that um john lennon was shot so i had this experience of just getting into this group without really knowing who they were and then suddenly having to backtrack and finding out all this information about how you know they, they were the, the, the sort of the major cultural force uh of the 60s and and the the biggest band in the world
1: and also as well i mean obviously this is way way pre-internet and so finding out about bands at this time was actually really difficult right it it was difficult yeah i touch on this in the book it it was difficult but
0: exciting i think and more exciting because you had to get on the bus and go out and spend some money and, and discover these things so it became the prize when you came back home with it was sort of more was worth more I, I felt even though it was frustrating you couldn't um and i mentioned in memory songs as well that if you were really into an artist you know that feeling when you are really just you're hungry for more mm-hmm. information about them and you want more records and you want to see you want to know what they look like i mean some led zeppelin in the following chapter i had no idea what they looked like because i mean they had a willful anonymity to, to, to their, their product but um it was hard to find out what the damn brute looked like because it was nowadays you just obviously just, you know, a couple of clicks away and you you binge on their, their their fan sites all day. But so yeah, it was, it was, um, it it was more difficult, but, but in a way, in a way more exciting, I thought.
1: So um, the book also uh, uh, goes into some great length about David Bowie and the influence that he had on you. So, um, so what impact did the uh, the Fin White Duke have on you as a teenager?
0: He was. I mean, I was aware of him as well. This was the strange thing because
1: concurrently,
0: he, he just, in just early eighties. He just you know had had a huge um, serious moonlight tour. So he wasn't. He, he, you know he was a mainstream artist. You know there he was with with the, with the with the perm, the blonde hair, and doing you know playing Milton Keynes. And I didn't really have a sense of him. Uh, as someone who'd been a transgressive uh, artist, someone who was channeling all these reference points, um, quite in the same way that Brian Ferry was. At that you know, at, the, at his Avalon stage, you know, you spin back ten years, and, and, and there he is singing Ladytron in a in, in a tiger stripe lyrics bomber jacket. I mean, they're, they're not the same man almost. But with Bowie, it was kind of um, you know this huge artist, but and, and a big you know canonical multi selling multi million selling artists but had also done all this interesting stuff. And he would lead you back to other people. And that's something else that, that I mentioned, portal so called portal artist who is portal to you know, Bowie quite quite sort of easily leads you back to um you know, Warhol and the Velvet Underground mm. and and you know esoteric writers, the Beats you name it, you know, he He'd he'd been so he was like the he was like a teacher figure. Really important. I mean, I had friends. uh, It was sort of the Bowie was their artist, so I couldn't get quite as near to him as I'd like. I couldn't quite make it my own, Um, but he was still a really important, especially as he was doing you know um, uh, sort of transgressive stuff within the pop media.
1: And so, as the book is called "Memory Songs," um, I feel we should dive a little bit into the contents and uh, discover what kind of memories some of the songs that you discuss in the book provoke. So let's start with um, This Is The Sea by The Water Boys. Clearly, just, just to sort of spin back,
0: we can see here that, that my tastes were, were hopelessly Catholic. I um, was <laughs> just you know, into so many different, you know, where do The Water Boys fit with David Bowie? Uh, and then The Triffids, which is the next chapter. Um, but it was a sort of, it was a kind of patchwork of things I was pulling together. I mean, maybe The Waterboy is not so much, because Mike Scott, in that time, before he went to Ireland, uh, was was very much influenced by Bowie and The Clash and mm-hmm. Patti Smith. You know? So these things fed into the more rock side. And with a song like This Is The Sea, it was such a powerful piece of music on so many levels uh, that became something that would uh, i describe it as a song about regeneration that constantly regenerates itself Mm -hmm. and it's probably unique in that respect that you know what he's what he's trying to say in the the song that was the river this is the sea so the past is gone you know the, the the present the future this is where you need to be this is perfect for a memory song because if you go through your life and you play this at 15 or 25 or 35 or 45 it can means something completely different and you're always on the threshold of the next thing um, so I, I think that's the perfect the ultimate sort of memory song for me, you know. Yeah,
1: it, I, I have to be honest with you, I didn't really know that song until I uh, read this book and I, I uh, yeah. dug out that song and um, it is a really beautiful piece of music and just lyrics as well are just incredible. And, yeah, I, I yeah. obviously I was listening to that song in the context of your book and realised that, uh, you know, your book is split into two, the first part being the river the second part being the sea, perhaps, but you know that's kind of what I read into it a little bit there.
0: Yeah, totally. No, I hadn't thought of that in that sense, but that's true. It is, mm-hmm. you know, it's where that 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 sort of you know, moving from a small town, hitching where we were in in Hertfordshire, and moving to the city. That is that is you know, it does feel completely daunting. This this thing of moving uh, to the big city with no connections, no contacts there. <laughs> yeah. You know? No, I just I think because someone pointed this out to me when I was writing the book and I was thinking, well, not everyone's formed a band and moved to London. But they were saying, no, don't worry about it, because it's universal, because a large majority of people, you know, need to move out of the town they're born into, and move into the adjacent big city mm-hmm. to, to make, make headway into whatever, uh, you know, whatever profession they're going to to start at. So it's a, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a well-worn story, but one, I think that hopefully resonates. You know?
1: Let's move on to, uh, well, another song actually, that, which is a memory song. Uh, and I would like to sort of hear what you, what this song conjures up, which is motorcycle emptiness by the Manic Street Preachers. What it,
0: it, it was my, my way into the Manics musically because I loved their interviews. Um, They'd been in the music press, sort of walking the talking the talk for about a year. They were totally different to everyone else. They looked phenomenal, uh, and you know they've done they've done these interviews. They've done a little interview on Snub TV, which is a tiny little indie indie TV show. Yeah, it had this reach. You know, people people would see it, and um, you'd, you'd, you'd have Richie and Nikki um, sort of talking in these beautiful. Beautifully modulated Welsh voices about about doing terrible things to to their contemporaries who who they absolutely hated and it really made sense of their their interviews because in cold print it didn't look it looked quite callous you know but here they were and you think ah oh, right I really get it now this band are really interesting they've got these contradictions uh, they look amazing but I couldn't find a song I, I thought the, the the music press weren't on their side at this point. You know, they didn't have the songs that, or, or, or maybe a melody, a, a, a sort of commercial melody. So they weren't really being taken seriously. And I remember, distinctly remember, remember hearing Motorcycle Emptiness on a thing called Greater London Major. And the big production and this gorgeous tune guitar riff and the descending line underneath mm-hmm. it. I think, who's this? Gosh, you know, this sounds said You know, the it sounded commercial it was very very um highly machined as a a record but it had something else and then the words (laughs) came in and it was just this torrent of of sort of motifs and reference points and uh, very disturbing stuff about culture alienation despair and suicide Mm. and and then it's beautiful chorus it was just It was really the standout song of that year, apart from Suede and the Drowners, you know. And they'd they'd done this song that had so many things that were were sort of pulling at each other. You know, there was a classic rock thing, yet there were these references. It's it just so exciting to hear that for the first
1: time. And of course, the ultimate Portal band I think are the Manic True Preachers. They've sent me into so many rabbit holes that uh, I've been very hard to climb out of and uh, that is a little, a catalyst actually of a song in terms of a, of a Portal song as well because there's so much going on in there. The sad thing is about that song is that when they released it, they couldn't even play it live because they were still playing in these shitty venues and they're still playing with crap amps and guitars so they couldn't even play that song live at the time which is a real shame
0: Yeah, I mean they probably wouldn't have done it justice um, Yeah I mean I remember reading a story that they'd had Philip Hall who um, was their manager and also was involved in our press company at one point before he sadly died um, at a very young age um, he he was very keen on um, this song, Motorcycle Emptiness and I remember reading that You know, the Mannix were very keen on putting this out as the first single, but uh, but he said, I may have got this wrong, but he or someone else said, look, just keep this back, keep it back to the fourth or fifth single, you know. Mm -hmm. And they were so right because it was just, it had, you know, they'd established themselves and then they pulled this out, which anyone in any group's repertoire would be your best song, you know, but far and above anything else, you know. Um, but yeah, just to spin back to, to the Portal sort of, um, aspect. Yeah, they, they they were the ultimate band because of, because of their manifesto stating all these different artists and writers. Um,
1: One more song I think I just want to touch on uh, because this is kind of a fresh hold song for me. I was uh, 15, I think, 16 when this was released, but Common People by Pulp yeah. was kind of that first song that launched me into Britpop. So it was a pretty big song for me at the time. What do you remember about that song? This
0: was—it was the turning point for, for their career, for Pulp's career. But it was the turning point for for me getting into the band, and it and it probably was for for many others too. But I I had a slightly ambivalent attitude towards Pulp because they seemed to they they, they just weren't serious enough for me. So that would be totally fine now, but I think at the time, a few people said, "Well, are they?" they seem like like a sort of joke band almost, you know, like Jarvis is doing these these moves that looks like a sort of parody of a 60s singer. Um, and they had a couple of songs. They had, you know, Babies, which is really mm-hmm. good, uh, and Lip Gloss. And and then this song, and I hadn't heard it on the radio, so it arrived as this sort of... I, I saw it I saw it on Top of the Pops when it, it was already number two, and it arrived as that sort of perfect sort of pop-cultural moment, you know, like, like this sort of um the Starman moment must have been for, for the previous generation on top of the pops. You know, you see it, it's all there, perfect, the whole stall is set mm-hmm. out. And it became this sort of the Zeitgeist Zeitgeist, the sound of the summer, you know, it was just it was just everywhere and everyone was wearing the shades on top of their head like Jarvis <laughs> and he, <laughs> it really was I, I, they became my favourite because I did in in the book in Memory Songs I, I slightly sidestepped Blur and Oasis because they didn't really I, I, I just they just didn't get to me as much but with, with Pulp you know after this moment after Common People such an astonishing the lyric is just astonishing you know as it keeps building and building I just thought well there's no this is beyond the scope of any other uh, any other writer active mm-hmm. at the moment, you know Dave, uh, Damon included you know no one no one this is you know this is, they've raised the, everyone's game here you know
1: and the song structure of that is quite odd because of what you said there it builds it doesn't really do this course uh you know verse chorus verse thing it just continuously builds which is something very new i think well new to me at the time for sure yeah yeah, yeah absolutely and, I, and i've just sort of seen it
0: there's a slight resemblance a slight sort of dna similarity to this and this uh, to this is the C. In, 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 in the two songs in the, the fact that they're just a sort of force of nature they keep building uh, they keep building on a simple idea uh, towards a sort of you know until it can't build any 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 further you know they're epic songs but but yeah you know you haven't got this this huge chorus that it keeps coming coming mm-hmm. back to
1: it's just but let's move on to the um, the second part of the book um, because this details your move to London and this was in the early 90s is that correct? kind of in the late 80s, early 90s yeah yeah Yeah, to pursue so this was to pursue your ambition to become a musician um so how did that feel to move away from your home and start what could be termed better or worse your own adult life
0: well it it was terrifying at first as as i think i mentioned it was just you know we had no context there no just no idea of how to even find a flat how do you find a flat you know you just you look at ads in shop windows and then, oh you could. someone said that you could look you could find some you could find a flat from the evening standard you know so you, you go there it was just sort of finding your way uh you know pre-internet with no sort of map i mean i think i was really lucky to not have to do it on my own because i had my brother we had this sort of common purpose we were very young and um zealous and idealistic and everything was about the band and you know if, if he suspected I wasn't putting in the hours songwriting, they'd be held to pay. You know, it would just it, we were just absolutely committed to somehow making a record, but completely clueless about how to go about it. And no, nobody at all. Um, and it was quite a sort of harsh, desolate period when you look at, or London was at that time. It was, it was still. It still sort of had a bit of a whiff of the eighties about it, you know. It was, it you know, the money hadn't arrived in in terms of you know, the, 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 there was still a recession going on. Um, it, it was it was hard to do anything really. And what I what I found really interesting, actually, and maybe I'm jumping the gun a bit here, is, is I was just reading Brett Anderson's book. Really. <laughs> They were doing the same thing, just in another part of London. They, they just had, didn't have a clue. They didn't know anybody, you know. Um, and his book, I think, really evokes what it was like at that time. It goes into a lot more detail about, um, you know, signing on, and just just being completely out of step. That's what, That was the feeling at the time, being out of step. And when, when's this?
1: Yeah. And, of course, as well, um, your early drummer uh did end up in suede
0: yeah so, so yeah, simon gilbert was was he with us very well not that briefly i think we, we did about six months and we had a band called shade and he was i think this is suede biog out there that that lists his um lists all his bands and we were we were his 12th band <laughs> and suede were his lucky 13 so we were exactly his, his unlucky twelve. Yeah, I mean, I say in the book, he was a lovely guy, you know, uh, and just waiting, I think, for the right band to come along. And and we did, we worked hard. Um, and I think at that that point, you know, Swade I mean, apart from, from, from you know, having Bernard Butler on guitar, you know, Suede, they had a manager, and that, that was, it's, you weren't going to get anywhere without a manager. Um, so... Uh, so that that, that that was that little, you know, and that's my into the book. I, the, the book finds me, the intro of the book finds me watching, you know, from having seen Simon a couple of years before or a year before, suddenly seeing him on the top of the pops as the best in band in Britain. You know, it was, it was quite a spur to kind of really get on with it and try and do something.
1: Um, a lot of books that I've read, I, I read a lot of music biography. I've not read Brett Anderson's yet, and I do want to at some point. Um, but there is that talk of like... Uh, moving to London to become big, to be where the music scene is. And it always seems so easy. And your book makes it seem like that was an easy move too. But, like, do you think it's harder now for bands who are just coming up to make that to make that move?
0: It's interesting. I, I really wouldn't know. I really wouldn't. I mean, I think it depends on your background. It's not been made for the past few years about uh the majority of musicians now you know so sort of what there's a, this, this stat isn't there something like you know 20, 25 years ago uh 20 percent of the musicians were were privately educated mm-hmm. now it's- now it's 80 percent or something so if you've got that kind of that safety net it's a lot it's a lot easier to do it you know it's a lot easier to to be able to to, to sustain yourself and create the art that you, you so want people to to live, to hear um but on the other hand i mean i do know a couple of artists who are 20 years younger than me and it's it's incredibly difficult now And maybe it was maybe it's always been that way but they they're, they're having to, to create a lot of the buzz themselves, they're going off and, and, and putting up YouTube channels and, mm-hmm. and things like this, and, and you know there's obviously Twitter, um, which has made it, in one sense, it's made it a lot easier to, to, to disseminate your music uh, but it's, it's it, that, that, kind of, that, that kind of fracturing that unraveling has made it a lot harder because there's not this central focus there's, there are not three music papers and Radio 1 where you have to be in and you would get this huge exposure. Now you could have, you know, a million YouTube hits and, and still not have a record deal, you know. Um, so I'm sure it's just as hard now in its own way.
1: In the book, you talk about uh, the experience of making uh, your first record with uh, Flamingos. Um, but at times that, that story that you tell in that book, uh, it doesn't come off as particularly positive. So what went wrong in the making of the record and how did it affect your desire to become or remain a working musician?
0: Yes. Well, we had the classic sort of, the the sort of, you know, snakes and ladders thing where we were all ready to sign to Electra, which was, which was fine by us because it was an amazing, legendary record label. Um, And they pulled their operation out of the UK and our deal collapsed. So we ended up uh, signing with this, with this indie label, we didn't have a huge amount of experience at, at marketing guitar bands and it all sort of unraveled after that i mean i'm quite i guess i'm slightly uncharitable in the book to the label and, and really no one forced us to sign to them um and it must be remembered as well that we were hot headed young men we were arguing amongst ourselves we couldn't agree on anything um and it had all becomes so overheated and important you know we we left our education behind and this was our 20s this was a lot it had to work it all it all became so so silly really so that the recording process sort of unraveled and in that sense it is a little bit like like sort of other rock books you may have read where it kind of all goes a bit pear-shaped in the studio what we ended up with though was an album that we were really proud of and can still i can still listen to it today um I'm, I'm still proud of it and I'm amazed that we got anything out but what happened at the end of that process was we were just exhausted really we just we should have had a rest um, we just you know been hammering away for the last 10 years um, so yeah I mean that and that's sort of where the, where the book ends is, is, is around that time when the band just, just implodes and we did have the we had the usual ego things that, the, the, that all bands have you know being in a band with your twin brothers. This, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it, so. That must have been,
1: yeah, that must have been tough. Yeah. <laughs>
0: but it was like, we were, you know, we were, the thing, the thing, Oasis were, were emerging at the same time. The thing, the thing was really interesting with them is that they made their fights. They made all the fights into a USP um, and something that, that would become a sort of a soap opera. But we, we were fighting like cat and dog, but we were so... Uh, you know, fearful that our manager would, you know, would see this and wouldn't want or people wouldn't want to work with us because there's division within the band. We, we didn't realize that the best thing to do was to make it public, but, you know, we'd be having this big old sort of, you know, ding dong in the rehearsal room and we'd be like, quick, quick, the manager's coming back, you know. We just, we, we didn't really sort of, sort of see the, the press value in that. But, you know.
1: So um, let's move into uh, the kind of writing of uh, the book. Um... Did you find any difference in writing a book compared to, say, writing a song?
0: Yeah, it's it's. Inter- I thought about this on and off because I mean, it's not the book. The book is narrative nonfiction, so you are you're dealing with um, you know characters and emotions as you are in songwriting. So that's useful. I think there's a lot to learn from from songwriting, also in the in the sense that. You know, when you, when you front load a, a song with a hook, this draws the listener in and you can, you can use the same technique with chapters. And also the fact that because each, each chapter is kind of self-contained in, in a sort of essay form, really. So I think the song, the song form is quite similar to the essay form. You, know, you start at a point A, you go off in your mad discursive, you know, ride wherever you want to go. And then you return to, to, to sort of point B at the end. Of the song and this 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 is very similar i found to the to the to the essay form of the chapter
1: when you finished the book's manuscript and you were handing it over to the publisher did you all of a sudden like have that facepalm moment where you just felt oh my god i've left out so and so band so and so song were there any glaring omissions from the text i did
0: you know i and and the glaring omission for me was mark Boland and t rex because I think I mentioned them. I think there's a reference to them in every single chapter. I'd have to go back and <laughs> verify that. But um, I, I just thought that there might have been room for a really killer Mark Boland T-Rex chapter because he was so, like the brief that I set myself was, was, was you know, the music that, that fed into or informed or shaped rip-hop. Mm-hmm. There's a huge amount of Mark Boland's influence as an English artist there. But, you know, it's kind of, it's, Maybe maybe it's best that I didn't because I was also aware of not being too obvious with the with the bands. I mean, they could have been a, a really killer Smiths chapter because they were so important to Britpop. But I thought, you know, stick to. Stick to um, the ones that really that I, I, I really could I really found myself writing about first, and also maybe the more esoteric ones. I mean, for instance, for me the really the real anomaly in the book is, is the chapter on the Triffids, the American the Australian band, mm-hmm. so the Triffids, eighties the band, and I was really unsure of that. Uh, and when I handed the book over to the publisher, at that moment, as, as you just said, I was ex- I was truly expecting him to say, you know, love it, love it, love all the Bowie, but cut the Triffids. And the publisher Matthew at Unbound, who's a brilliant music fan, uh, the first thing he said to me was, "I love the Triffids. <laughs> this is my favourite Triffids song." Oh, thank you, thank you. You know. Um, And and another thing that has happened with this chapter is that people may not know the Triffids, but a sort of a weird kind of superimposition is taking place. It's like, look, that chapter said so much to me, but the band wasn't the Triffids. It was actually for me, it was the Sundays and reading, writing, and arithmetic. Mm -hmm. So they've taken something and put their own band over the top of it, which I found was fascinating. So I'm quite happy that the Triffids are in there because they they were some, you know, my one of my pair bands, but you know, where do they belong in the book on group
1: Poppers? Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of the aspects of the book that I really enjoyed whilst reading it was the ability to see similar situations that had occurred in your life uh, that also happened in my own. And the difference was that I could place my own songs to match my own memories. So was this in some way deliberate? Did you want the reader to think about their lives whilst, whilst reading the book in musical terms? No, I didn't. I, I never thought that. And I didn't. I just had no idea
0: that that kind of transference would take place. And it's really, really gratifying to hear that because I thought I was being extremely and probably was being extremely self-indulgent and, and just writing about stuff. I mean, I did, one of the things for me was I wanted to write a book. I wanted to write about my favourite bands. So mm-hmm. I wanted to write a sort of book that I would i would read myself i would pick up in a bookshop you know so i was being quite selfish writing about this stuff and and i didn't know that that transference uh, could take place yet when i think about it i, I probably i've probably done the same thing myself in other mm-hmm. books you know uh, a very it's a very interesting uh two-way street that happens between a writer and a reader uh if the book's working it's a sort of it's a kind of conversation in a way it's it's fascinating thing
1: oh yeah and uh you know the uh your friend uh duke uh, who was a guy who was you know a little older than you a little wiser a little more cooler maybe you know i had a similar guy you know in my youth as well who introduced me to music drinking smoking (laughs) you know those kind of things and Yeah. yeah so i i immediately uh placed my own my own guy on top of him and this, you know, right. the situation's unfolded, but you know, it was interesting that in, instead of your music, which obviously is is important to you, I could put my own music on top of it. So I was like soundtracking my own kind of uh, memories there. So that was uh, yeah. it was a really neat thing. Um, I'm interested in uh, Unbound uh, their publishing model. So could you tell us a little bit about Unbound and how that differs in other ways and and its advantages? T- Disadvantages, if any?
0: Yeah, so Unbound are um, they're a small independent publisher, um, but the difference, the key difference, is that they require the costs, the physical costs of producing the book, to be crowdfunded by the author. So, in all other respects, they're a, they're a small, uh, getting bigger, independent publisher, um, and they have, you know, they, I mean, their distribution is Penguin Random House, so that. You, know, you do. you are in the bookshops, you know, you're in Waterstones, they have, you know, staff, they have PRs, they have, um, you know, they have the, all the publicists and the editors and, and, and sort of real top, top level of, of staff, you know, people who've been in publishing for years, they really know their stuff. Um, Yet this this is one thing where, you know, the author they've they've got a crowd from the book and it's it's hard work and they they're very upfront with you at the start of this process. There's a, there's, a, there's a workshop for all the writers, and they say, you know, you've got to get in there and and just find your inner the hu- inner hustler. Mm-hmm. I remember them saying, you know, you've got to find your readers, and it, and it, it's really it's tough. It's because you know a lot of artists, a lot of writers aren't the most. Uh, the most garrulous mm. salesman. Um, it's hard to do that—that—that thing—and sort of, you know, knocking on the door of, of, you know, uncles that you haven't seen for twenty years to, do, to ask them for twenty quid. Um, but you've, got to, you've got to do it. You force yourself to do it. And the the other thing that it does is it forces you to to find a readership or a fan base on on Twitter, sort of person by person. This takes. A huge amount of time and work, but you what you're looking for is your, your your natural reader. So that was hugely useful, you know, because by the time the book comes out, you've got 1,500 people, hopefully who who are sort of mm-hmm. sort of like minded, and you know, maybe want to pledge for the book, um, and maybe want to uh, you know read more of your work. So 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 how it technically how it works is that the, the, yeah they open the, the sort of pledging. You have different pledge levels. Um, you know, you have basic sort of incentives and things, and people pledge for that until the book's funded. And it's not like a Kickstarter where there's a uh, there's a cutoff point. I mean, it will just it, it will keep going on until. I mean, sometimes the authors withdraw because they're they're, they're exhausted of mm-hmm. the, the process. Uh, but the book's fund, and it can take two years, and it's it's an amazing process, you know. Uh, and I think this. I mean, it's it's actually an old. i unbounded king to point out, it's a, it's an old model. You know, uh, Dr. Johnson and uh, you know Dickens were used, and Voltaire they they were had had books that they they they, they crowdfunded. Um, So it's not a new idea. Um, what's good is that it gives them the publisher quite a lot of freedom. Artists, uh, well, just because there's, there's no risk involved, essentially for them, you know. Um, so they can they can publish titles uh, that a big house probably wouldn't touch, you know, because there's too much risk. So it's been a, it's, it's it's quite a sort of revolutionary um, in its in its own its own small way. I think
1: yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting uh, interesting approach to publishing. Um, what was your approach to it, and how long did it take? So what what kind of activities did you kind of engage in to get this uh, to get this funding, and and how long did it take? I think I think it took about a year all told, um, and
0: um, you know it, 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 it was yeah a question of, of trying to sort of look, look for your ideal and natural reader. Um, there were various sort of pledges um, pledge levels with the book. We, I was quite lucky in, in in the fact that I could um, the, the, the very. Highest pledged level was was you know we'll put the band together back together and we'll play a gig in the living room and there were a few takers for that. Uh, I have to say we haven't we haven't honoured. Um, <laughs> we've only done one of those gigs, um, but uh, yeah, I mean that was you know those sort of high end pledges really help help to get a book off the ground. I mean they they have some of their writers. Um, they may also teach creative writing so they, they can put things like workshops up there, and I, and I know that. I took that idea and I had a, uh, a sort of songwriting workshop that I offered. Um, so it's these these sort of
1: experiences rather than stuff. So, um, uh, We're just coming to the end of, uh, of the interview here, so thank you, James. Um, I would like to ask uh, what's uh, what you've got lined up next. Are you writing another book? Are you involved in any music uh, projects right now?
0: I'm not involved in any music projects. No, I mean the the, the thing. I mean it's all full time writing now, really. That, that my brother and I are doing. He's he's a novelist now and he reviews a lot. I'm I've got um, some ideas, an idea for for my next book um and i'm trying to do you know a lot of freelance work and and, and getting in on the reviewing side and stuff so writing all the way now i think i don't have the itch to to uh to create songs anymore which is odd but you do hear the odd one and i think i try to leave a bit of hope uh <laughs> at the end of memory songs that it's not you know the future hasn't been cancelled but every now and again you will hear a song like a, a video games or, or something or that you were good on the dance floor, you know, you, you hear a song,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know, it's what that, that, the, that art form, that three minute art form is still, has still got life in it. You know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, it's harder the older you get, I think as well. It's easy to become quite chromogen about music as you get older, because obviously as memory songs kind of uh, entails, it's you, you kind of reserve nostalgia and for the past, it's hard to kind of break into the future a little bit, but there's still great music out there for sure.
0: Yeah. It's just harder to find because there's no, well, there's no one pop music, you know, it started to unravel. You
1: know, mm-hmm.
0: years, mm-hmm. ago. But yeah, it, it's still out there and, 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 and getting older. Yes. You know, we can all say, Oh, he's better in our day. Um, but interestingly, you, you mentioned Duke. I mean, I still know Duke and, um, and he's, he's the same. He's absolutely burned burn <laughs> CDs He's absolutely into whatever the esoteric sort of music of the, of the day. And, and he, he just hasn't changed. He hasn't lost the, you know, so it's out there. If, you, if you've yeah. got people, like, you know. Oh, for
1: sure it is. Well, listen, James, thanks ever so much for joining me today and talking about memory songs. Um, wish you the luck for the future, man. Thanks very much.